3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Hi everyone, Annie here for Showreel. Hope you're coping and staying safe with the COVID situation. Today... We are looking at how Australian content can be maintained with the streaming services like Netflix on the ascendancy. The federal government has left the field unregulated with no Australian content requirements, despite the fact that the Australian arts and entertainment sector employs a large cohort of people and contributes enormous amounts to the Australian economy. It is pretty obvious that without content requirements, Australia is likely to become a dumping ground for other countries' culture. The Australian Institute hosted Matthew Dina, CEO of Screen Producers Australia, and the actor-producer Eric Thompson, speaking with Ebony Bennett about just this subject. This is just an excerpt. You can get the whole lot from the Australian Institute YouTube channel in the next few days. And the Australian arts and entertainment sector is just a, a powerhouse in the Australian economy, but that's really um, quite misunderstood. Uh, it employs... Uh, close to 200,000 Australians and contributes $14.7 billion to gross domestic product annually. Uh, the arts and entertainment sector employs four times as many Australians as coal mining and as many people as the entire finance sector, yet its economic contributions continue to be poorly understood. So it's an absolute economic powerhouse, but it's been really hit hard by the pandemic. And uh, if you're anything like me in lockdown, we're absolutely relying on watching stories, in particular Australian stories. And if you're anything like me, you've been absolutely binging up a storm to make it through lockdown. Um, I can't handle anything too intense at the moment. So I've recently been enjoying a Rosehaven and Aftertaste and Back to Nature on ABC and The Family Law on SBS. Those are about my speed at the moment. And our local content requirements for television have really delivered that quality Australian content and Australian stories for decades. But now with the streaming services coming on board um, and huge take up from within the Australian community, it's really crucial that streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and Apple are required to tell Australian stories too. But there really are no requirements um, on them to produce local content. So today I'm delighted to uh, bring into this discussion our two guests today. Matthew Dina is the CEO of Screen Producers Australia and Eric Thompson will be, I'm sure, a familiar face to many of you. Whether it's from Pack to the Rafters or Aftertaste on TV, Eric is one of Australia's most respected actors across film, television and theatre. He's just getting into being a producer as well, from what I understand. And uh, I'll note that in doing research for this, I saw the trailer for uh, his new film, Coming Home in the Dark, which looks downright chilling if you're like me and are a massive fan of horror. I can't wait to check that one out. 
Matthew um, and Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Eric, how are you? Um, Matthew, I'll start with you. Obviously, the whole arts and entertainment sector has really been struggling during the pandemic. But for people who aren't really familiar with the industry, can you just start by explaining to us a little bit of the problem that you're encountering and, and why local content rules don't apply to streaming services? Yeah, look, thanks, Ebony. Look, let me just start also by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land. We're, we're so fortunate in this nation to have some amazing storytellers that actually go back in the first storytellers, 60,000 years or so plus, uh, in terms of the rich cultural heritage that we've got uh, in Australia and want to share with the world. Um, yeah, so our industry is an interesting one. It's a project-based industry where people come together, form teams, uh, deliver the content that we're all enjoying. Uh, and, you know, I'm a, as guilty as any is probably having the same taste as you, but I have to give a shout out also to the newsreader. But Aftertaste was fantastic. Great comedy delivered right at the right moment. Well done, Eric. Um, uh, teams of people coming together, a lot more people than people realise that are employed through those teams. And we might touch on that later. Um, in the pandemic, the problem originally was we didn't know how to put people together in the same room, did we? And one of the things that's been okay through this period for us has been um, some protocols and some um, little bits of support that have meant that our industry compared to maybe, maybe parts of the other creative industries has been able to keep functioning, not without its challenges, moving people around is hard, border closures, all of those things. Uh, but we've been able to keep sort of plodding along. Um, the biggest problem, though, and you alluded to it, is that this, the whole basis by which our industry has been um, created in Australia, and it's, and it's the same challenge globally, um, is that you need to have support structures to build our industry from. Um, they come through, pre I call them the carrots and sticks. You need a, an element of carrots to incentivise people to work, and that's really good investments from government because it builds other investments, private investments. So we're an industry that's quite a challenge to um, take a risk on. So the little bits of seed money come together and, and then they create the whole um, production and that we've been able to work through that prism. But the most important um, element is the requirements for different businesses uh, that would otherwise not invest in local television, um, particularly drama, children's content and documentaries, that they have absolute rules around what they do to have to deliver those um, those stories. Because, and you know, if we step back a minute, the problem for us is that um, we are an English language nation in which uh, there is a substitutability for our story um, from the American sort of huge machine of the studio system uh, that can deliver into our market content that is purchased by people supplying it to consumers uh, for very cheap, cheaply. It's essentially um, already monetized in other markets. So it effectively gets um, dropped into our market very cheaply. So there's a competition issue always on the ground in terms of how we might make our own content. And so we've always needed rules for the systems of delivery to consumers in Australia and, and then, you know, to also hopefully to the world by which there are requirements to show content. And as we're seeing, and I'm rambling on a bit, but the, the structure of, of that is changing dramatically as we move away from the traditional broadcast model of watching things to more and more, as we all are, um, Netflix, Amazon, Disney+. Plus. And those new platforms who are really quite dominant in the market now haven't got any rules. And the question is, well, why is that? And part of it's a game of catch-up and part of it is that um, it's a conflicted policy space in that the businesses that are in Australia 
delivering now very, you know, a lot of content um, to everyone uh, don't want to have those rules. So there, there's a, a battle royale happening uh, in government, I suppose, at the moment to work out how to implement those rules and, and make sure um, we get to a good result. We can get into the detail of what that result would look like, but that is really what's happening at the, the coalface. And it's not that this is new problem because they've had four reviews actually in government to basically say, this is what you should do. So we're just playing a game of, come on, come on, come on, let's get going, let's get going. And the risk is that other territories are already doing these rules. And so the global investment from um, those big players will start to kind of go into the territories where there are rules already. So Australia has got a, you know, a job to get self organized and deliver this stuff and get moving. Uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> um, Eric, I'll come to you next. You're obviously a working actor across both Australia and New Zealand. Um, but I wondered if you could just kind of, um, you know, take us behind the scenes a little bit. Australian film seems to be doing okay during COVID because we've had so few cases. Um, but, you know, how important are local content rules behind the scenes in terms of driving investment in productions of the likes that of TV shows and, and things that you've worked on? Uh, yeah, I'm coming to you from Ghana country down here in South Australia. And, um, yeah, look, we've, I think on one level we've been doing really well we've, in terms of uh, production during the pandemic. Um, certainly, you know, certainly last year, the beginning of this year, um, the government put up a lot of money to incentivise foreign productions to come down here and shoot. I think it was $400 million, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, to uh, to bring... Foreign, foreign investment, of course, that all flooded into the country. And uh, and then we've kind of seen recently things get a little bit more tricky with the Delta strain and, and particularly in New South Wales. Um, and quite a lot of those productions have now, have now left. And quite a lot of the people who came flying over here to be, be part of it have gone. So, you know, it was a it was very much a kind of Band-Aid measure on, on something that, that perhaps could have, that, that amount of money could have really been spread out um, within our own industry to keep the smaller productions working and to push our industry forward in the future because, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of competition and I think given the um, the fact that free-to-air networks are making less drama um, and the streamers aren't required to make a lot of drama at the moment or even not only required to make any drama at the moment. So what, we, what you end up with is a lot of stuff in development, whether it's funded development or it's actually being funded by the funding bodies, uh, all all fighting for that small that small amount of money, um, and some of that will be lucky enough to make into production. But certainly during the pandemic, there's been a real bottleneck of that. Um, you know, the like like I said, the the amount of money available is, is seems to be shrinking, and the amount of people wanting it seems to be growing. So we really are at a crossroads in terms of the way that people watch television. No longer on the free to air networks, and, that, and this has only happened in the last half a dozen years, really, and since. Our national broadcast uh, broadband network was fast enough to, to, for streamers. Um, it's only really six years, so we're really trying to work out what the best systems are. But certainly, uh, we need to find a way of making uh, making funds more available to our production companies to produce the the high quality work that we know that they're capable of. Yeah, not... um, I was just going to say. Um... Matthew, can you give us a picture of how big the streaming services are and how yeah. much they produce content and how little of that is 
you know. Yeah, it's massive. It is, no, no, it's a good point. And Eric's just hit the nail on the head. The issue is it's a question of making sure Australia gets its fair share of what is a, a, actually a reasonably well, huge um, business. So altogether, the three major ones, which are um, Disney, Amazon and Netflix, they are spending in, a, in Australian dollar terms about $37 billion a year, um, that's the public information, on new content. And it's just been released. Um, they were asked by the government to, you know, account for how much they're doing in Australia. And they um, mentioned, or they, the report so far is that they're doing about 122 million in Australia. So if you're a statistician, that'll be, oh yeah, sounds like a lot. It's actually 0.3% of their overall expenditure. Um, so you go, hang on, we're only getting 0.3% of these big businesses that we're all signing up to and we're investing in terms of our subscriptions. And our model is to say, well, hang on, that's not enough. Um, and it's inconsistent because the thing that, um, you know, Eric's a, the, a, someone who can testify to this, the problem for the sector is it wants a stable pipeline of work. And then you have people that are secure enough to develop projects and, and stay with the industry and not move away from um, this sector or have to travel overseas or or, or to live in Los Angeles, which has kind of been one of the challenges for us if we don't have enough going on. So we're saying, well, actually, raise your game here. Um, let's get up to a point. And we're only asking for what would ultimately be about 1% of their, as a, as a sort of a benchmark safeguard for our industry, 1% of their global expenditure, which equates to about $360 million of investment each year uh, into local Australian stories. So it's kind of, you know, it's not that much more but it would be a huge amount in terms of what it would deliver onward for the industry because that would lift us into about 10,000 more ongoing permanent jobs. It would create about, you know, another 10,000 hours of content or 100 hours, I should say, of content each year. So these things are kind of big um, opportunities for us to not just stabilise the industry and grow ourselves into a, a different space because we've been... Um, I think, you know, um, if the, the, the benefit of being in a global world is that we get to tap into that, but if we could also get swamped by it. So we're kind of going, hang on, this is now um, what we used to be small broadcast space. We're in a global environment. Let's make sure we get the opportunity to launch ourselves into that space and not be swamped by all the deluge of, um, of content. Yeah, well, no, easy. Sorry, if I could just jump in there. Sorry, yeah. I just, I just think it's, it's important that, and I think neither of us, none of us, want to demonise the streamers because they're, they're certainly, you know, we, we all enjoy the, the work that they, that they produce and, and that we can be part of. I think it's more, and they're big, they're big businesses, and they're able to come in here and they see a fantastic business opportunity. It's more to do with what they're finding when they get here, which is, you know, a very, very good business opportunity because there's no kind of restrictions or stipulations or, or requirements for them to be here. And um, it's tax. very, very, <laughs> or tax. It's a very, very profitable. And it's just a case of, of just introducing, like in any other of the big industries in this country, if we were to suddenly drop all the, the tariffs and the duties at the border and say all the wool and all the meat and all the just come on in do whatever you like we're not going to we're not going to tax you we're not going to just you, you don't even have to employ anyone the the government it would be a bloodbath the government would be would be out in a day it's not happening in our business because our borders are in the cyber in the cyberverse you know and it's easy for, for it to happen and like i said before the the national broadband network which has cost us you know um, 50 billion plus is of taxpayers' money has 
provided the perfect environment for the streamers to to work. And like I said, um, being great great business people as they are, they've seen a great opportunity. We just really want to make sure that there is the similar protections in our business as there are in every other industry in Australia. Yeah, and I was just going to say the Australia Institute's done a bunch of work in this space and we've just released some polling that shows Australians definitely... um, back your proposal, Matthew, in fact, probably um, a lot less modest than uh, what you're proposing is. So we um, we polled a representative sample of about a 1,000 Australians and found that three in five or 60% um, of Australians support requiring uh, subscription video on demand services like Netflix and Amazon to spend at least 20% of their revenue on Australian content. Um, and we also found that about seven in 10 Australians use at least one um, type of service like that. Netflix is by far the most popular. But people are also concerned about things like children missing out on history and culture due to the prevalence of American content on those kinds of platforms. Um, And I thought it was interesting that really um, that that type of concern um, cuts across political lines as well. So it's really clear that there's a lot of support out there um, for the types of things that you're proposing um, there. Um, Matthew, yeah, well done on that research too. I'll just give you guys a, because it's a really important conversation that you're able to add to the, to the national discussion at the moment. So sorry, over to you, Becky. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, um, we have seen the government kind of paying a little bit more attention in this space. It's had a couple of inquiries as we've referred to, but um, the minister, the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, I think you touched on um, the figures that they released that they'd asked from the streaming services about um, how much that they are actually spending. But he's had a few more um, comments about this recently that indicates that the government is seriously looking at this issue. Do you think the government really gets the problem and and is going to be willing to act on it? Look, I think think they're starting... Look, I think there's there's a, a getting a handle on it is been a process for a number of years, um, and I think the natural tendency sometimes is to see whether or not you have to regulate the market and wait to see what's going to happen. And our concerns have always been, and we sort of start to see it if you wait too long to do these things, or if you let it drop too far, you lose a lot of people and businesses in the process. So we've been wanting to push and make sure that, you know, the government's really onto it. And I think we're seeing, you're right, there's been a green paper that was announced. It was all, um, the the sort of starting points for the conversation were very small, um, light, touchy style um, regulation proposals, which ultimately won't get us the cultural or economic value that we uh, need. So, you know, when I was referring to, sorry, 1% before, that was 1% of their global spend. We're saying um, that would translate to about 20% of the revenues they receive in this market, which is consistent with what you're saying. And we would think that's a good benchmark. The government's suggesting at the moment 5%, or it's posited whether 5% would be the right level. And we've gone, no, um, that's that's not even kind of probably where they're at at the moment. And we need it to be a proper investment for all the reasons we, we're talking about. Um, and it, I think this is then an opportunity, as you've touched on, that to us to show that people really care about um, the content they receive. And we know that that's true because if you give people great, made, well-made 
Australian content, um, back to the rafters being a great example there, it's just launched, um, it is stuff that they would absolutely prefer to watch because it's their own stories. And there is a, a deep concern, I think, in most cultures, not just Australia, but everyone's interested in the world, but they want to make sure that they understand themselves and that their children and their, 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 their community is communicating with each other through story um, and that I don't think any government would want to be the demise of that. So it's really then tinkering around, well, how do you get the best result in a regulatory sense based around the challenge of these very large businesses starting from a position of not wanting to be regulated, of course, and that's a natural position for a big business that is, has already entered the market to go, well, we don't want to be regulated and putting a lot of pressure properly on government to say, well, don't regulate us. And at the same time, commercial television who are bu building their own businesses in this front with Paramount Plus or Stand for Nine or, um, you know, Binge for Foxtel, they're also saying to government, don't regulate these new businesses. So there's a lot of pressure on the government. Um, and I guess our job as an industry and, and the public and maybe people that are watching today is to also put their voice out to government to say, Actually, this is really important to me. I want to know that we have great Australian stories being made. I think this is a great economic story to tell. Um, it's great to see Eric on screen. Why don't we see more of him um, every day? So many different productions. Um, so, you know, those stories. And we have at the moment a, a, also a site that we should mention to people. It's called um, makeitaustralian.com. I think it's Make It Australian if you just type Make It Australian in. Uh, and it's a vehicle for understanding a little bit of these issues behind the scenes and also an opportunity for people to, you know, write to um, the local politician and just say to them, well, actually, this is this matters to me and it matters to the future of the nation. Because I think if you if you take away our Australian story, you kind of take away Australia in the process, and then you don't. We we're kind of not operating as a kind of a bound, understood, um, you know, cultural nation anymore. That's it for Showreel this week. Just to remind you, the entire session for protecting Australian content in the age of Netflix can be heard and seen on the Australian Institute YouTube channel. Until next week, keep safe and keep sane. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio here on 855am or maybe you're streaming online on 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Monday Breakfast. The time is 7.25am and it is Monday the 18th of October. My name is Fung and we've also got Jacob in the other studio. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, Hope you're all doing well. Yes, uh, and if you've just joined us, we were um, well. We were just listening to the song "Here Comes the Sun" by George Harrison. But before that, we were listening to um, Matthew Dina, CEO of Screen Producer Australia, and actor and producer Eric on how Australian content can be maintained uh, with the supremacy of the streaming services like Netflix. Um, they spoke about the fact that the Australian arts and entertainment industry employs close to 200,000 people and contributes $14.7 billion to um, the GDP annually, which is four times as many people employed in the coal industry um, and as many in the financial sector, which I think is quite incredible. Um, And I think it really just shows the importance of the arts industry, um, especially now, you know, during during the pandemic. Um, if you'd like to listen to the entire conversation, you can go to uh, the Australian Institute YouTube channel um, or you can visit www.australianinstitute.org.au. Well, welcome to another week at 3CR. How are you this morning, Jacob? Yeah, I am. I'm going well. I'm, I'm feeling energised for the week ahead. Um and also a little nervous, to be honest, <laughs> which I think a lot of us are feeling right now, um, the way things are going outside. How are you feeling, Fong? Yes, I think I am feeling quite similar to you. Um, for those who, I don't know, may not be aware, the government announced that Victorian lockdown will be ending at 11.59 on Thursday. So, mm. quite a surprise. Um, so, yes, I think... Similar to you, Jacob, I'm feeling a little bit nervous. <laughs> nervous, nervous, but excited as well. I yeah. mean, there's, there's plenty to look forward to, um, but plenty to be cautious of as well. Definitely a lot of mixed feelings. Mixed feelings is, yeah, the correct word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, we will be back with a song right after this. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR. Um, So up next, we're going to be playing a song, and this one is by a local artist. Um, She's a student at Monash University, um, and her name is Kitty Ray. So this song is entitled Red Lights. Me in the eye, there's innocence until you change your mind. 
So that one was Red Lights by Kitty Ray, um, and I actually watched a, a live performance of that song uh, at a virtual event on the weekend, and I was just really amazed um, and just so happy with the way that she was so committed to dismantling the patriarchy um, and just full-on telling men to, to stop doing things that they shouldn't do. Um, so I'm, I was very happy to play that song. Uh, by Kitty Ray. What do you think, Fung? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think not only the lyrics, but just the way that they sang it, I could just really feel the genuine passion behind that. Truly, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. So up next, we've got a section brought to you by Alice Golds from Wednesday Breakfast. As most media turns its gaze away from Afghanistan and the events taking place with the Taliban, 
Alice caught up with Azadar about what the Taliban takeover means for the plight of Afghanis under Taliban rule. Now, last time we spoke to Azadar Raz Mohammed, um, it was a couple of days after the Taliban took over Kabul. Um, Azadar is a lawyer, PhD student at the University of Melbourne, and today we're going to just talk about what's happened since we last spoke, just days after um, the Taliban took Kabul, as I just said. Now, Azadar, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. And last time, I think there was such an urgency that we wanted to speak to you and, and understand what was happening from your perspective that we didn't really spend much time talking um, about you and not that you need to talk about yourself but I just hoped maybe you could give our listeners a little glimpse of your own experience um, leaving Afghanistan or coming to Australia and that kind of relationship. Yeah right Um, so my family left Afghanistan in 1998 and I belong to a minority group of Hazaras. Um, We live in uh, southern Afghanistan close to Central Highland where um, stronghold of Hazaras um, in Afghanistan. We left the country because um, Taliban had seized my um, uh, my province uh, for two years prior to that, and there was a human um, humanitarian catastrophe. It was unfolding. People were dying of hunger. There was a shortage of medicine, and then um, uh, Taliban uh, was actually imposing um, a lot of restrictions on and, and freedom of movement and any kind of uh, foreign aid uh, or humanitarian aid to enter our province. Um, I was a re- little child, and together with uh, my family, we decided to leave. A lot of family left the area on, on those years, and we were among them, so we had to um, uh, basically um, uh, leave the, the, um, our hometown in the middle of the night and enter Pakistan without any documentation. And, uh, and the lucky for us and for my family is that my, my father was already doing a small business in one of these Central Asian countries. And so we had no documentation, no passport. And after um, some time uh, in Pakistan, we managed to get a, a passport a passport and documentation from the embassy then. I think it was Taliban's embassy and the Emirate, the, the Emirate um, Islamic of Taliban's um, Afghanistan's embassy. So we got our documentation and traveled to join my father in Uzbekistan. My story is one of the luckiest Afghans ever that I, I, I speak. Uh, because um, uh, we didn't experience uh, all those harsh treatment as a refugee, and then I didn't experience war, but um, all those two years that I, I had to develop my cognitive behavior and cognitive um, understanding of the issue in Afghanistan was uh, the war on trauma, for example. And for the first time, I knew I was a Hazar was from radio. We would always listen to BBC Persian, like religiously, like a lot of families in that area to know what's happening across the country because then we didn't have internet or like a connection to the telephone. So it was just the radio that we would um, always um, listen to and um, I hear that from radio that a bunch of, um, a group of Hazaras were being executed in Mazar Sharif um, and that's a kind of a genocidal, um, character. it has a genocidal characteristics. I asked my older brother who usually used to um, uh, tune into radio for us and I asked him that uh, who are Hazaras and why are they being killed? And my brother told me that um, uh, we are Hazaras and uh, we are being targeted by Taliban. Being so naive and so young, I was just probably eight or nine. I asked my brother, um, uh, can we not be Hazaras so we will survive? And that's the memory that I always remember. And another memory that's haunting me from my childhood living at the fair of the Taliban is 
Um, my everyone's first grade teacher is so special to them, and um, I had a very um, like any other child, I think, and all over the world, I had a very um, a special bond with my first grade teacher. Uh, his name was Bayani, and um, him together with two other teachers uh, coming from Kandahar, one of the stronghold of Taliban cities, to our province uh, was actually abducted on the on their way to our province of Ghazni, and they were uh, shot and killed. So not having them, like his absence and not having him and the rumors that he was actually killed by Taliban and, and all these scary scenarios of how he was killed, execution uh, uh, scenario, is something that uh, I never probably recovered from. And uh, I always remember him. And I always, for example, I have a deep respect from all teachers now that I'm doing a PhD in this level. But his memories, his uh, teaching is still stay, stayed with me. And uh, very, very foggy memory, of course, but it still stayed with me. So these are my uh, my um, story of uh, uh, of childhood in Afghanistan. And then I saw Kabul for the first time in 2005. Um, my family used to uh, originally live in Kabul, uh, my parents. And uh, they left the Kabul during the civil war, and then we were all born in our, uh, in our thing, in our um, hometown of Jogori. Um, my father didn't take us to a family house because that whole side of Kabul was completely destroyed and the houses and everything was, um, it was not something that he wanted us to see and remember of Afghanistan. And no matter how much my parents tried to protect us, not to um, be too much exposed to these, um, uh, these traumas, these harsh realities of the conflict and war and Taliban in the ground, but um, we were somehow exposed like so many children. So I consider always myself very lucky that um, uh, my father was already out of the country and we left. And uh, um, I, But I always fought with the identity crisis. I, I never um, knew what kind of... Um, um, you know, I, I always hold so much uh, pride in being an Afghan, like any other like any other person who would love their country. But having Taliban representing, I always had a conflict there. So um, and then I left for uh, for the UK to study, and then I returned to Afghanistan in 2013. I worked there uh, in a, with a foreign um, a mission. And uh, on human rights and humanitarian issues, and every day we um, we had a horror story of suicide attacks, of uh, complex attacks on on uh, on issues. And I just wanted to end this. Uh, your, your, I, it was a really long answer, but I wanted to end this um, answer that um, when we had last week an earthquake in Melbourne, um, I was in my apartment in South Bank, um, and I was holding my um, uh, one month old, two month old baby. And my husband was asking me something, and then I, when I felt the initial shock, it just the trauma and all those memories of Kabul's suicide attack by Taliban came back to me, and I, I just don't remember how I did that, but I just remember that I grabbed my baby, a blanket around her, and I just ran to emergency, and I don't know how I ran down those seven floors because in my mind I was in Kabul, in my mind I was running from the Taliban suicide attacks. Because um, when I started working in 2018, up until 2018, that I came to Australia, the daily or weekly suicide attack was something that we, we had to accustom to that and we had to be resilient to that and we had to make measures in order to save ourselves. So those instincts that um, this is a suicide attack, this is something that's happening in Australia to me, and coming down those stairs running from the emergency and my husband from running behind me to make sure that I'm safe with the baby in my arm. I had all those traumas back to me, and I couldn't recover for another two days from uh, from that. So um, you can imagine all that those people are going through right now and uh, been going through all these years from the Taliban. 
terrorization and intimidation. Wow, Azadar, thank you so much for for sharing that with us. That's your your story and also your trauma that you just mentioned. Um, and that earthquake, it must have been terrifying for you. Yes, exactly. Because um, the, the um, thing is that when I got uh, like a run down to the stairs, uh, we had uh, actually was, we were moving houses. So there was a bunch of uh, removalists at home and they didn't even realize what's happening because um, I think my instinct or this survival uh, tactics that I had uh, with me from Kabul that we were trained actually sometimes, unfortunately, starting a job, part of a contract working with a foreign mission or with any uh, organization would be to train you on where the safe houses are, where how do you get out. There's two types of alarms. One of them is to lock down because Taliban is in the area like they're attacking. Mm-hmm. One of them is to leave the building because they're attacking actually the building. So you have to remember which one is that alarm from. So and um, having um, my office used to be in a couple diplomatic area. So um, these attacks was really, really frequent. Uh, I remember that the first week that I started my uh, job, uh, we had five attacks in one day, like extremely powerful, um, complex attacks of suicide attacks, killing a lot of civilians, most of them aid workers, foreign aid workers, of course, Afghan civilians, bystanders, shopkeepers, anyone who was unlucky enough to be on that uh, on that side would be killed indiscriminately, and Taliban would take bluntly responsibility for that. And I think you and uh, the world has seen, and you have might, might have seen the Taliban spokesperson, Zabihullah Mujahid, who uh, uh, like appeared last month in Kabul for the first time showing his face of who he is. Um, his voice is so much familiar to a lot of us because he took responsibility for those attacks, saying that, yes, we were behind of those attacks, we were attacking this person, there was collateral damage, and it's all right. So it's very traumatizing, and it's very sad and extremely disappointing, and I can't even explain how we feel to see him there right now representing and speaking from, uh, um, like, somehow speaking to the world from Afghanistan's address now, mm. who took responsibility for all those traumas that we're going through. Like even going to the office, like we had to change every day uh, from which road I'm taking. And one day I leave at 7 a.m., at 6 a.m., or at 9, at 10. So I avoid these attacks and I avoid these tactics. And if I'm um, personally actually being targeted, I have to avoid that because you, uh, as working as a human rights lawyer or a humanitarian lawyer in Afghanistan, you have to speak up against a lot of people and there's... Um, um, a lo- always a threat and a target on you, and uh, um, you receive a lot of uh, uh, intimidation, warnings, phone calls. So you have to um, be very vigilant. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, traumatizing and it's very upsetting to see these people now in power again. And the one thing that I think is is interesting that you have actually written about um, in an article for the Sydney Morning Herald is is what of what countries when when the Taliban are now looking to develop their communications to the to the global leaders of the world and they they're to try to maintain their control how how dangerous is that what what are we seeing what countries around the world might be starting to acknowledge the Taliban and potentially look to invest in a Taliban Afghanistan Yes, that's uh, that's very concerning, actually. Um, so Pakistan in the in the late 90s, when Taliban came uh, into power, um, of course, illegitimately again, um, they uh, Pakistan, which is a long-term supporter of the group, um, um, recognized the, the, them as the legitimate government of the country. So I think it was the uh, UAE, um, uh, United Arab Emirates. 
recognize them, and I, I believe it was Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm having such a foggy uh, brain today. <laughs> so they, these three countries um, recognize Taliban as a legitimate government or, uh, of Afghanistan, and of course they will always contested their um, yeah, legitimacy uh, as a government, but they didn't do anything. They were like just right, like right now, they were bystanders until the um, 9-11 happened. And just before the 9-11 happened, um, uh, the years leading to that, like the four years leading to that, we were always warning um, that there was a um, Northern allies who were fighting resisting the Taliban, they always uh, um, warned the world that, you know, we have the international terrorist, uh, terrorism there. Um, and this is a concerning not only for Afghanistan or for the region, but for the world that nobody actually listened to us. Just, I think, um, just a month or two before this uh, tragic event of 9-11, um, the head of uh, uh, Northern Alliance Resistance Group, Ahmed Shah Massoud, he spoke at the European Parliament saying that um, this is very concerning and warned the world that, you know, what's happening in the country, please do something. And it was actually uh, ignored right now. Um, so it's very, um, right now uh, that the Taliban actually introduced a few weeks ago an interim government saying that this is just an interim government and a caretaker government. We are working on a more inclusive government, but I don't. Uh, we don't really believe that Taliban will honor any of this commitment that they are giving. They just are looking for recognition and acceptance by the international community. So countries that have actually indicated that they are um, willing to work with the Taliban, especially on um, uh, on uh, a lot of commercial uh, routes, a lot of commercial investment are um, Pakistan, of course, again. Uh, Pakistan is now advocating for the Taliban to be accepted uh, um, um, by the UN and by the international community. It's China and uh, it's uh, some of the countries in Central Asia, including Uzbekistan, that they um, uh, indicated that, not uh, directly, but just indicated that they actually want to uh, accept Taliban as the legitimate government of the country. And is it is it just on a whim that a government can say, yeah, sure, we accept the Taliban or we're going to accept this ruling group or are there standards? Do, do the Taliban actually need to meet standards in order to gain international recognition? Um, there, according to uh, law, and uh, there are a few standards to recognize a country, and that there is a difference to recognize the government according to international law. But um, countries are uh, mostly uh, very independent on what they want to do. Um, but um, the international community has, uh, not directly in terms of written form, but verbally and uh, through communication, speeches has put three conditions for Taliban to be um, to follow, actually. One of them is having more inclusive government. What inclusive government means is that Afghanistan is a country of ethnic diversity. And there are no, um, although they, there is a claim that a certain ethnicity probably is uh, more uh, on the majority, but there has been no um, survey. So we don't know who is the majority and who is not. So they believe that there should be an inclusive government of all these ethnicities. The international community is imposing that. And the, first, the other one that Taliban should take more measures um, not to uh, make Afghanistan a harboring um, country for terrorism again. And the other one is to respect for women's rights. But uh, so far, none of them has been happening. And I'm not sure why the international community is put, putting so much leniency towards Taliban, because as you might have seen that... Um, Taliban has banned secondary and high school mm. students to go back to school, and then Taliban has eliminated Ministry of Women's Affairs, making it a propaganda ministry for um, virtue and uh, prevention offense, which is for, uh, religious policing, and has uh, asked men not to um, uh, not to shave their beard or, uh, or or women to leave the house. And then a lot of my former colleagues who used to work in the government, they're not allowed to go back to their offices. 
And there, um, there, there was a lot of protests of women protesting, these brave, brave women protesting Taliban. And you have seen the images that they were protesting at the bullet points. Taliban are literally pointing them mm-hmm. uh, with the gun. But they are still screaming and saying that you are not legitimate, you, are not, you do not represent us, and we want equal rights. Uh, with all those saying, um, do you might also see a very horrifying um, image of Kabul universities, uh, women, uh, all black, and I'm not sure uh, where those dress code is coming from because that's extremely foreign to our friends. Um, we are a, a country of uh, cultures and traditions and Islamic values, but um, that dress code is not even... Um, uh, it's, it's very foreign to us, and um, uh, although women used to cover themselves their forehead, we always do, and because it's part of our culture and our, already our, our Islamic values. But um, and those uh, women in the Kabul University sitting in the auditorium is extremely um, uh, oppressive, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they're, um, uh, and now they have banned women and female uh, uh, faculties uh, to enter the university, saying that we will allow them only and only when we have a, a more installed security and everything because we're protecting women. What kind of protection are they talking about? This is exactly the same protection that they excuse that they put in 90s saying that we're a country, a country at war. Once the war is finished, we will allow women to go um, to, to work. Um, or, or to school, but um, this is not something that new to us, and we know that um, they will never honor these these promises. Yeah. And the last point, sorry. No, I, Okay. The last point about um, the, the conditions that the international community put to them indirectly is that not Afghanistan shouldn't be a harboring uh, place for terrorism. Well, it's very clear that who are fighting in Afghanistan is a transnational uh, and international terrorists right now. The United Nations, um, a, lot, a few months ago, like earlier this year, uh, I don't have exactly which month, they uh, actually published a report saying that Al-Qaeda is very much present in Afghanistan and very much fighting alongside them. And then transnational terrorism, there are hundred, there are 23 uh, groups, uh, transnational uh, terrorist groups right now active and fighting with the Taliban. And they are extremely re- um, resilient and extremely um, uh, discriminatory towards the West and, and very um, uh, very much uh, looking forward to, to say that, oh, Afghanistan is a starting point. We want to have this kind of thing. We want to basically take over the world and, and uh, um, make it Islamic, uh, Islamic rule. So uh, and and then also yesterday, um, the uh, U.S. Uh, Defense uh, Secretary said that, that um, it will take only two years for Al Qaeda to to be a threat to a serious threat to the United States again. So I'm not sure why the world is just by standing and watching that. Although countries are um, independent and recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government of Afghanistan, but there are certain human human rights and human rights criteria that they should fulfill. It's a kind of a moral call or moral obligation on each state or each country to accept. Mm. We're definitely seeing countries take this wait and watch approach to to accepting or to taking action on what's happening with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, Azadaraz Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been so generous with your information and your story and everything that you've shared with us on the show. Um, thank you so much, Azadar. Thank you very much for having me, Alice. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem whatsoever. That was Alice from Wednesday Breakfast speaking to Azadaraz Mohammed, who is a lawyer and PhD 
PhD student at the University of Melbourne. They spoke on Wednesday breakfast about Afghanistan under the Taliban, about uh, Azadar's own life in Kabul and experiencing uh, experience coming to Australia, as well as the countries that acknowledge the Taliban and may invest in the development of a Taliban Afghanistan. Well, the time is 7.53 a.m. We'll be back with the news headlines after this. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back, everyone, to 3CR Monday Breakfast. You are joined by Fung and Jacob. Welcome. We thought we would take you through some of the news headlines for today, Monday the 18th of October. Um, I did want to start by talking about um, the fact that a few asylum seekers who are being detained in a Melbourne hotel have tested positive for COVID. Um, they have. There are reports that um, they aren't. <clears throat> sorry, they are not vaccinated and have not been um, getting tested as regularly um, as when they were in Sydney's Villawood um, detention centre. Um, and there are still around 45 people being detained in the hotel. So it's quite a scary um, situation there at the moment. Definitely. It's um, infuriatingly frustrating, I would say, um, the fact that they've they've been detained for so long and that so little um, accountability has been uh, made by the government in that only about 35% of the detainees have been partially vaccinated mm. and 16% fully vaccinated. And when we compare that to the, the general population of Victoria, it's obviously wildly uh, disproportionate. And I think it just goes to show a, a really strong mismanagement um, of that whole system, which shouldn't have been in place, really. They shouldn't no. be locked up. Um, but it's just disappointing to see that the government isn't even taking responsibility to look after people who are most vulnerable. And I can imagine that the people detained in that hotel are probably too scared to speak out because um, Lord knows what would happen if they did. Yes, and, you know, they, I mean, they have, they've also been speaking out, you know, um, during their entire time being detained there, speaking up about mm. their human rights. And mm. But you're right, Jacob, it is um, quite dangerous and quite terrifying. Um, so stay tuned uh, hopefully we can bring you some more reporting on that. Um, related to COVID, we spoke about this earlier, Jacob, but Victoria will be ending, well, Melbourne specifically, will be ending mm -hmm. their lockdown five days earlier than anticipated um, as we are 
yeah, racing to reach 70% uh, full vaccination. Yes. Um, which, yeah, like, like you were saying, you know, it's sort of bittersweet. On the one hand, it is exciting that things are starting to move and open up. But like we just said, not everyone is being included in this and there are still going to be large groups of people and communities who um, will still be um, vulnerable, um, you know, leaving their homes because they haven't yet been vaccinated or they can't get vaccinated or they're immunocompromised. So, For mm. sure, yeah. The, the threat well and truly feels real uh, now that I, th- I don't think we've really opened up in a state like this before where there's um, such a, a genuine and imposing threat um, to the community. So it is a little worrying. I think it is necessary. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I hope that we can all sort of look after each other and remember basic hygiene because I think we're going to be acting in the realm of, of public health response for quite some time. So I think just ensuring that we're, we're still socially distancing um, people still remember to wear their masks and hand sanitizer. Mm. Um, I know it's a, a pain, and it, I kind of I woke up this morning and I did sort of feel oh we I feel like I'm living in a bit of a dystopia um, <laughs> at the moment to think um, back to two years ago when you know we would have felt a bit insane <laughs> wearing a mask on public transport, but now yeah. it's just um, a given. So um, anyway, I think with time, um, yeah. I, I hope that. We can return to some sense of normalcy. And I, I do hope that um, the communities who are most vulnerable will be looked after. Um, definitely. And, and just to make people aware of the changes that are happening from Friday, there will be no restrictions on people leaving their home. Uh, the curfew will also be scrapped. There's no travel limit within metropolitan Melbourne, although people in metropolitan Melbourne uh, will won't be able to visit regional Victoria just yet. Mm. Um, you can have 10 visitors at home each day. Um, and I think, you know, what you were saying before, Jacob, about keeping up with basic hygiene practices will be especially important given that now we can go into each other's homes. I think sometimes we tend to relax, but it's good to stay vigilant. Mm-hmm. Um, outdoor gatherings will increase to 15 people up to 20 fully vaccinated people will be allowed inside at hospitality venues with 50 outside. Um, yeah, and, and also uh, all school students in Melbourne will return to classrooms at least part-time from Friday, uh, while regional students will return to school-based learning full-time. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well... I am just glad that we aren't calling it Freedom Day, like oh, uh, New South that's Wales. An, that's an awful, um, oh. really ignorant term too, on so many levels. It just rings with um, right-wing patriotism. Oh, so it I, really does. I was a little frustrated seeing how widely used that was um, among both friends and the media. <laughs> <laughs> like, shut up, it's not Freedom Day. Oh, definitely. <laughs> not for everyone. No, exactly. Um uh, one more thing that I wanted to mention uh, was the, the Nationals met um, in the party room uh, to meet over climate policy but left without any concrete oh. position <laughs> after four hours What's new? of discussion. <laughs> What's I know. new, honestly? Um, they met in Canberra on Sunday uh, to discuss 
whether or not to commit Australia to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. I mean, we know that, you know, there are... Um, there are organisations and and people who are calling for um, ending uh, reaching net zero emissions by 2030. So 2050 mm. isn't even no, the most. No, it doesn't even cut it. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so not good enough. <laughs> no, so they left the party room um, undecided. Uh, it it what are they going to receive mm. in exchange for their support? Mm. And this comes ahead uh, of uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison's trip to the climate summit in Glasgow, where he is expected to officially commit <laughs> After Australia. After many weeks of uh, <laughs> speculation, our <laughs> Prime Minister is um, actually attending the most important climate summit um, of this time. Yeah. So well done for doing the basic <laughs> minimum. Um, it's interesting to note as well that Labor insisted it will outline its emissions reduction targets, including 2030 commitments, closer to the election and only after the coalition has showed its hand. So, Oh, my God. Wow. That is I, also I simply cannot stand how climate change has been so politicised into um, an election issue. It's like th- this should be an ongoing discussion. Um, oh, and the fact that people are only coming up with climate policies now as though it's groundbreaking and new. And mm. we've known about this for so long. It's just incredibly frustrating. And as a young person, kind of watching the the line of hope fade <laughs> for the future, if you will. Um, and I, yeah, I do hope um, and I can see that there is sustained pressure both um, mm. domestically and internationally. Um, but it's just so, like, I just, I feel so helpless, the fact that the fate um, of our country and of our climate policy is in the hands of a handful of very conservative uh, national MPs mm. and a few liberals who simply won't budge. Um, and to, to put it in Malcolm Turnbull's words, uh, using terrorist tactics um, to essentially overthrow any chance of, of progress on this issue. Definitely, but, you know, we'll keep fighting. We will. There is hope. Yeah. Um, plenty of, well, I think the majority of people want this. So um, Definitely. And in some good news as well, um, I don't know if you heard about a campaign called Joke Keeper, um, in which there was a, a comedian who I believe is Australian called Dan Illick, um, and he put together a series of billboards in Times Square in New York um, with a oh, bunch yes, of sort of jokes about Australia's climate policy. Um, and there was like a uh, one of my favourite ones, there was a Cards Against Humanity photo and the black card says during an outbreak of a deadly virus form a commission of experts to fix the problem by and then blank and the white card says building a gas pipeline (laughs) (laughs) so i i just we've talked a lot about um climate misinformation and communication on this show and i think that's a really great example of um a way in which you know we can use these tools to to raise awareness and Mm. to continue putting pressure on um, the government. So I guess that's a great message to end our headlines <laughs> on is continue to sustain the pressure. Definitely. And hopefully we'll gain some, some progress soon. Fingers crossed. Well, I wanted to play a song now um, to see us out of the headlines this morning. It is a performance of the iconic song My Island Home. And this was uh, 
performed by Spinifex Gum at the live at the Sydney Opera House and I really like this rendition. So here it is. Well, we're having uh, <laughs> a few issues with the song here. Um, what I might do is just go to announcement and we'll be back and, and play it then. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. EFA 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast um, with alternative news breaking um, and more. And unfortunately, Fung Song does not want to cooperate. So we're going to jump to um, another section now. And this section is brought to you from a show called Stick Together, um, which is Wednesdays 8.30 to 9 on 3CR. Um, and Jacob Gretsch here spoke with Brett Collins from Justice Action on life inside Australian prisons during the COVID-19 pandemic and the campaign to build a prisoner's union. Um, and this section was presented by the host, James Brennan. Here I am in the hollowed environs via um, the wonders of cyberspace um, of Trades Hall in Sydney. Um, I'm here in... Um, in Trades Hall, basically, to talk to Brett Collins from Justice Action. Now, Brett, welcome to Stick Together Show. Oh, wonderful to speak with you, Jacob. Um, Brett, there's been a fair bit of media in recent times about the issues of COVID in prisons. Um, what's the latest on that? Oh, it's an extremely serious situation. You've got, at the moment, it's about almost 40, 45,000 people sitting inside the prisons. And because there isn't social distancing, there's no chance for people to um, separate themselves from other people in the same way as the public health orders. It means that people are really are sitting ducks. They're very likely to catch infections. And the example of what's happened in, in the U.S., uh, says that there'll be something like six times the rate of infections inside prisons, that the um, re results of that will be many deaths uh, because of the uh, sickness, others' uh, sickness generally. Six times and, the rate. Yeah, six times the rate. I mean, it's just I mean, it's, you know, because people are, are passing through choke points, security points. There's, um, there's a sort of lack of, of care by guards. They bring, the, they bring the infections in and then just goes, whoa. And the contamination just spreads like wildfire through, uh, through, the, through the prison system. Right, you just mentioned health. You were starting to talk about health. Is there a health, apart from COVID, are there health issues in the prisons? Oh, look, absolutely. You know, the people who are in prison, they, you know, they are uh, very much more sick than the um, average uh, person in the community. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, obviously, mental health issues, the tension of being separated from families, uh, but then, of course, there's the drug use. So many people are in there, 75%. Recording for, in uh, progress. Um, some sort of drug 
um, uh, 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 some sort of drug relationship as well. And then, then on top of that, you've got the poor health services in the prison. You can't uh, choose which doctor uh, you want to see. You've got one, or in most times the nurse. Um, so it's not the same as actually finding one doctor um, uh, not satisfactory whom you yeah. don't trust. Um, whoever you get um, is uh, somebody who um, tries to get you out of the, uh, uh, the surgery as fast as they can and don't respect you. And there's a real feel about that in the, in the system. Yes, I remember from the very, very short times I've, um, I've managed to stay as a guest of Her Majesty. Um, any complaint was largely met with take a Panadol and go back. Well, these days you don't even get that. <laughs> so stop whinging. Get back to yourself. <laughs> no, but it's when you haven't any other place to go and you really are in pain and you're not trusted, not respected, that's pretty bad. And, um, yeah. and having health departments you know, who, who ignores you and despite you know, your um, you know, very um, significant personal and social health difficulties, always tough. Yeah. And um, so with COVID, much like anything else we're seeing in all other aspects of society, while in, in some ways a big part of society is slowed down because of this situation in prisons and um, because of what I've been seeing on your social media, um, the work of Justice Action seems to have stepped up, I oh, won't say a notch, I'll say three or four notches since the start of this pandemic. No, absolutely. When the issue, of course, is that you've got all these people inside the prisons and they can't they can't speak. You've got the also family members who are outside. Normally, three people connected to every person who's in prison, and so the, the impact of some being isolated, um, not being able to get out of his cell. So at the moment, people are being locked down. Most times, locked down for um, almost a whole day. And the doors opened and then closed and behind them. Out sometimes people being out for ten minutes only, and for periods of, of three or four weeks without having walking in the sunshine. That has an immense psychological effect on the, on people in prison, and that's the sort of thing that obviously comes out later. But um, the, those conditions, lack of contact with families, uh, it means that you've got to distort a group of people inside the prisons, but then, of course, outside you've got um, uh, uh, masses, hundreds and hundreds of people who've been making contact with us and saying, come on, what can we do? How can we stop this? And the media, of course, has been interested. The parliamentary inquiries have happened, and there's a lot of um, uh, recriminations at the moment, particularly at the private prison system who um, have been the slackest of all and have intense infections running through that. Well, it's often a way, isn't it, the privatisation of all, whether we're talking about trams or buses or hospitals or schools, or indeed prisons and immigration detention centres. It's the privatisation of what were, up until quite recently, at least in your and my lifetimes, um, provided by governments as public services. But that the reason I'm calling you from the Stick Together show, Brett, is, um, as you know, it's a trade union show, and um, there's been a little bit of talk around the traps I'm hearing bits and pieces about the Australian Prisoners' Union. Now, I heard about the Australian Prisoners' Union probably in the early 2000s in a very informal sense. But um, what's the latest developments on the Australian Prisoners' Union? Oh, look, it's a very important, actually. At times like these, particularly when you've got COVID running through the system, and obviously um, we have a different, even a different um, uh, dialogue about COVID, that we have to live with um, COVID. Living with COVID doesn't really apply at all inside the prison, so there needs to be, you know, people need to be able to get up and talk, to express their concerns, and, and when you've got um, almost 50,000 people sitting inside the prisons, then to have some chance to 
have that voice coming through is essential. So we, what we did was um, make sure that the weight of um, uh, all, the, all that trauma or the, uh, the argument or the anger of people inside and out um, was expressed in some sort of way. So we thought, let's put it in behind the, the, the entity, the, uh, the body, which is the, most, uh, the best way to express that, which is the Australian Business Union, which, which was launched back in 1999. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but we thought, well, uh, let's get it up and running. Let's make sure that the voice is properly heard and we have a chance to use it not only for the COVID situation, but also with, um, with what's happening very shortly around OPCAT. And OPCAT is the, the well, Convention on Torture? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, it is. It's the look. It's the it's the Convention Against Torture, which is the United Nations Convention. But then, what Australia did was it was very embarrassed by what happened with the young Aboriginal kids up in the Domdale uh, Northern Territory uh, Juvenile Justice um, uh, Centre up there, where they had some kids who were hooded and and uh, tied down to chairs so for long periods, looking looking something like the Guantanamo Bay situation. So yeah. um, it, it was so embarrassing to the Turnbull government that they decided at that stage that they would have a walk. Commission into that, and then they were pushed into into um, uh, signing the optional protocol, which is op- optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. They were thereby called OPCAT, and mm-hmm. so and around OPCAT, and um, there's been a lot of push, a lot of momentum now uh, to make sure that all jurisdictions, every state and territory, has um, some sort of way of monitoring what's happening inside places of detention. Um, they say up at the um, in January 2022, which is only four months away. Mm. So um, there's a big push now um, for that to happen. So it's important, I, I guess, the Australian Prisoners Union will play a role in um, in monitoring um, monitoring breaches of the convention against. And I've just brought it up as um, I'm talking to you, because we often talk about it as a convention against torture, but uh, technically it's a convention against torture and other cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, look, it goes wider than just um, torture. And yeah. now what they did to um, to that um, kid up and then in um, in Dondale, well, yeah, right. there are a whole lot of things actually which are almost taken for granted, which is locking people into solitary confinement, and even just locking them in a cell and leaving them there for a long period. Yeah. That's actually has an immense impact on people's people's ability to um, survive. The you know lack of social contact and a whole range of things there really um, they cause unnecessary distress, which is the the term that's used um, to talk about torture and mm-hmm. then causing unnecessary stress and, and um, we've seen this on the bigger picture of course with um, Julian Assange over, over in Belmarsh prison in London where he wasn't allowed to be extradited because of the mental language and, and, and distress and it's not just Julian it's like he's obviously a celebrity a celebrity case but this is happening you know this is happening to kids in the Northern Territory who, you know, 15, 16 years old, who may be there because they've stolen a bicycle. Yeah, that's right. Look, it's appalling, especially when you realise that also, particularly Aboriginal kids, they live in their community, they live with family around them all the time. So to be isolated in a cell and by yourself at that age is just really, well, that term causing unnecessary distress is exactly that. There's no reason at all why people can't be held together and giving support to each other, having peer support. And even then, the justice system still gets what it wants, what it wants, which is, you know, ideally a person um, uh, uh, kept out of the general community and the community to be safe while it's deciding what's occurring. But there is no reason um, for that extra imposition, extra um, uh, uh, the effect on someone that is so distressing um, as to be kept separate to occur. 
But there are other issues as well. I mean, like we saw what happened with the uh, hooding of the young of the, uh, a young boy in, in um, Don Dale. But there are other issues, like for example, strip searching of people is another issue. Strip searching for for uh, women who have been abused, sexually abused, for you now mm. take their clothes off and to um, uh, uh, compel them to bend over, whatever. And you know how demeaning and how much um, you know uh, uh, how much like the uh, sexual assault that, that they've had to endure in in um, for the earlier parts of their lives. So something like ninety percent of women in that situation who are in jail uh, have been subjected to sexual assault and, and, and abuse. And then have them speak for themselves. So, so you know, how could you possibly have a have a, um, a an inspection regime and a national preventative mechanism, which is intended to go in and see what's going on, without making sure the human beings whom you're inspecting have a chance of feeding back and saying what they think, so you can they can be part of the reporting mechanism. Now, currently, that's not the case. Nowhere in the world. And so we're making sure that there is a mechanism for get, carrying that detainee voice forward and that the that the Australian Prison Union, Union becomes that, that it can report directly to the OPCAT and there's an advisory group. They have a, that it should be on the advisory group and giving giving the Commonwealth Ombudsman, who's actually in charge, he's, in, he's the, um, the coordinating body for all the states and territories to report and um, that, that um, Commonwealth Ombudsman should have the advice from detainees themselves, in order that it is effective and not just another another wank, which um, it just gives more jobs to bureaucrats and has no effect on the ground. Now, this sounds like crazy talk. This sounds like crazy talk. A lot of people, you're going to have to admit, would say prisoners having a right to monitor um, grievances against them. That sounds like crazy talk. I, I, I can already hear the voices saying, well, they didn't want to be treated like shit. Maybe they shouldn't have um, committed the crime in the first place, but I just want to say this is the same kind of crazy talk people were saying about building unions and clothing unions and manufacturing unions when they first kicked off in Australia. What right have the unwashed masses, who are just labourers and workers for a living, got to say about their conditions? And um, the Australian union movement has a proud tradition of saying, I guess, nothing about us without us, which is why the building workers in Melbourne marched for the eight-hour day while the you know, right up into more recent times, my um, my introduction to union issues growing up in Darlinghurst was um, the Green Bands and, of course, the Green Bands around Gladesville. Um, so I guess in some ways, while it might sound initially like a bit of crazy, crazy talk, it actually follows in that tradition of um, the Australian union movement being on the front foot in... in um, in recognising the community of its workers and people in the community and um, de- demanding a say in, in the conditions of their work. Oh, absolutely. In fact, look, if, you, if nothing else, um, just recognising their humanity to actually hear from them and recognising that they have uh, living the life that you intend to improve, not to engage them is just an outrage, actually. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't have you know, men talking about um, women, you know, and actually dictating terms to women. Well, they did for years, but thankfully we all agree that should change. Ah, uh, well, you see, I mean, if it comes just down to effectiveness as well, I mean, quite honestly, we are, are we are trying, um, if we have a, a convention against torture, we are accepting the fact that we actually don't approve of torture and that there, and we have mechanisms of people who are being paid to ensure that doesn't happen. Now, if that's to be happen, happen effectively, there is no choice but to ensure that the people who are affected have a voice and, and monitor it carefully if they are being honest 
and of course there's that that is proviso <laughs> so I'm sure that the bosses and on um, on um, uh, different uh, work sites may well have some sort of a, um, a paper tiger up there to inspect yeah. workplaces and and say that they're abiding by the rules of while they're not at all well we've seen that in a, we've seen that in many in many too many cases to to articulate on um on things like occupational health and safety grounds, for example, where bosses just tick off and they, you know, they almost, they tripping over ladders and tripping over all kinds of things on, on um, building sites, for example, while they're, while they're, um, while they're ticking off the OH&S provisos. And that's why, again, to bring it back to, to other unions, people in, in factory setting, engineering factories, um, construction sites, public transport, have demanded and won the right for their own representatives to determine the occupational health and safety and um, provisions on, on their websites and on, on their work sites, sorry. And um and I think it sounds to me like the Australian Prisoners Union is um, building on the work of those other unions over the years. Oh, look, absolutely. When work health and safety is one of the issues, in fact, in which the uh, union, the Australian Prisons Union, will be engaged. The whole range of things, of course, that follow from from the uh, the uh, uh, support and creation and and development of the Australian Prisons Union. But some of them will be, of course, um, just making sure that uh, the work sites are safe, that the um, that people um, are COVID safe. Um, that um, people who are sick, in fact, do have um, access to the doctor, and when that doesn't happen, then to make a complaint through the right through the right um, uh, uh, quarters to make sure, from a, on a day by day basis, um, that um, persons are safer. In fact, there are structures already in place for um, for just exactly that to occur. In most um, uh, jurisdictions, they have what they call prisoner advisory committees or inmate advisory advisory committees who are who are there. You know, just for that purpose. Most times, most times, elected from the prisoner body, and so there's this issue. This is a, this is a, a not a, in some ways, a radical issue. It's the entitlement of people to be represented, have their representations, representatives up there and and talking, and then for those to also to have a collective um, a, a voice, so they can actually speak not just at the local um, uh, cell block or in the yard or in the in the in the pod. Uh, and not just in the prison itself, but to all prisons. And so we have a we have a um, a, a supervision um, of conditions, of safety issues, of payments, of ensuring that people have rehabilitation services, have access to education, a whole range of things which are services where there's a massive amount of money being spent um, for prisons against prisons mainly. Yes. Um, you know, massive amount of money, but there's very little money that's tripping through to supply services. Um, so that prisoners, when they come out, have actually more ability. They can survive outside. That when they come out there, um, uh, we have a safer community instead of um, what's often the case: people come out more damaged, sicker, more likely to um, carry infections back into the community, like COVID. Um, so they incubate infections inside the prisons and then and then release people, so they they uh, can't survive and they're sick and they um, infect other people when they come out and can't become family sure. members. Sure. Yeah, and no. we've we've had just in. Uh, I'm talking to you in, in late September, but we've had um, in the past couple of weeks um, uh, one um, uh, youth juvenile justice ad, um, worker come down with COVID. We don't know at this stage of recording whether he spread it in the in the um, youth detention centre um, in Sydney, um, out near uh, Warrington, I think, near Penrith, 
We've had other people in COVID. We've had um, security guards. We've had all kinds of people visiting. But another point I want to I want to raise, Brett, just to to step to the side a moment. We're talking the Australian Prisoners Union, and um, we're talking about prisoners. But how does that fit? For, how would it fit for other detainees? We have people who are detained in Australia in all manner of things, and juvenile justice who aren't legally classified as prisoners. I guess we have. Um, asylum seekers who are being held in detention centres, both onshore and offshore. We've got uh, thousands, I, I'm probably not exaggerating, but my understanding is there are thousands of people who are in prisons that haven't been yet convicted of a crime. And then we've got things like people on, um, on medical intervention orders, um, forced medications, people in forensic psycho psychi psychiatric institutes, etc., does the Australian Prisoners Union take into account them or, is it, or are we looking um, finally at just prisoners in adult prisons in Australia? Uh, well, the, definitely the Australian Prisoners Union is looking at, at all people who are in detention. And we use that term quite um, widely. So it includes, for example, um, uh, people inside the um, psychiatric um, hospitals, but also people who are on community treatment orders. So we're most concerned about this um, extension of the coercive apparatus to, to even people who are held on parole or who are intensive corrections orders. So people who are conditionally um, released. Uh, that's a very um, a, a concerning area. And, and even in people who are in immigration detention who actually allow down the community, but who can be returned pretty rapidly. Those people have, have sometimes are the um, most vulnerable who are unprepared even to raise their hand and complain because if they dare complain, they're likely to go back into the detention centre. So yeah. they, they, that requires our detention situation is one which, in which we have a particular role for the Australian Prisoners Union. So that was Jacob Gretsch there speaking with Brett Collins about prison unions and the effects of COVID-19 um, in our prison systems. And the time is about 8.27. You're on 3CR Breakfast. I hope everyone's enjoying their morning. We're just going to play a couple of community service announcements and then I'll be right back. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of 
Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone. As part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. That's all we have time for today, folks. Thanks for joining us and tuning in to 3CR Breakfast. Um, if you haven't already, make sure you check out those new restrictions in place from the Victorian government and make sure you get your vaccine if you haven't. Up next is Women on the Line. Thanks for joining us.